0: You're listening to Global Conversations.
1: All right. Hello, everybody. This is Regina and Anthony with Monk School uh, Global Conversations. Uh, We are here today with a very special guest. We have Heather Miller. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of introduction about Heather, and then we're going to go into the topic for uh, this week's podcast, and then we'll get into some questions. So thank you so much for being with us, Heather. We really, really appreciate it. Um, so a little bit of an introduction for Heather uh, she earned her doctorate from the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto in 2018, specializing in comparative public policy. Heather is currently a Shirk postdoctoral fellow with the Institute of Science, Society and Policy at the University of Ottawa. She's a research associate with the environmental governance lab at the monk school of global affairs and public policy she's held leadership positions in the canadian nonprofit sector in a variety of policy areas including housing poverty reduction environment food security and international development last week anthony and i had the pleasure of attending the environmental governance lab panel that focused on the climate crisis after the canadian federal election in october we had tons of questions to the panelists and we thought there was no better way to um, ask them than to invite them onto our podcast so thank you so much Heather again I'm um, really looking forward to having this conversation with you um, talking about your expertise and then also just having a broader conversation about kind of what to expect in the coming years uh, in relation to climate change um, and in light of a minority government um, and then also looking at the federal provincial relationship and how that will transpire
2: Great, thanks for having me on the program Thank you
0: Yeah, yeah. so uh what was it, a week ago, two weeks ago that the... Yeah, I think it was, was a week or two, yeah. A week ago, I forget. The days are kind of not <laughs> to blur together. Um, yeah, so Regina and I got to uh, attend that panel and... Um, I think uh, it's an annual thing, right? Or, uh,
2: mm-hmm. I think we're try- the governance labs uh, wants to do them every a couple of them every semester. Okay,
0: okay. So uh, last year um, they partnered up partnered up with the Global Conversations podcast as well, and uh, they reported on it. Um, so they, they contacted us again this year and asked us to do it again. And uh, yeah, we were we were excited to do that. And, uh, yeah, we wanted to ask you, what's next for climate change in Canada after the election? Um, Specifically, uh, do you think that there's any lessons that Canada can learn from other countries for climate policy in Canada?
2: Yeah, I mean, we're at a very interesting time. Um, In fact a lot of, we can definitely learn um, from other countries, although at the moment, a lot of countries are looking to this Canadian debate on carbon pricing to basically see whether or not it's politically sustainable and the kinds of uh, debate that happens. Um, It's a very unpredictable time, just in the way um, that climate uh, the The timelines for action um, are becoming increasingly urgent. Um, When you look at um, the IACCP's most recent report about the kinds of reductions that we're going to need if we're going to get below 1.5 is significant. Um, But also at the same time, we have um, uh, another recent report by the UN uh, showing that coal is production is continuing to increase Um, and so there has been some reductions but that uh, a sort of fear that China is actually continuing to increase so I think the politics are also changing very rapidly so just as just as the the environmental um, ecology is changing and so part of what is unclear at the moment um, is whether or not um, this kind of conservative uh, partisan nature of climate policy which has become very partisan in the US um, and was rel- on s- much more muted but we definitely saw from the conservative uh, conservatives federally mm-hmm. and some of the conservative provincial governments we've seen um, that desire to sort of attack carbon pricing and to create a wedge climate as a wedge issue, whether that that's going to the Conservative Party, the Canadian Conservative Party is going to continue down that path is unclear. Uh, I think it really depends on the tensions within the party and whether or not um, there is a desire to grow the base outside of Alberta and uh, basically outside of resource intensive economies. For sure.
1: Um, So with that in mind, I, you know, with other countries looking to Canada as not so much as a country to emulate, but kind of looking for Canada to be a leader, Mm -hmm. um, would you say that you're optimistic about Canada's future? Um, You know, the Clean Canada proposal Mm -hmm. um, goes through a lot of different things, a lot of different initiatives from the mining level to quite large scale. So I'm curious to hear your opinions on that, if, if you think that Canada's on the right track, what we're missing, um, just kind of mm-hmm. an idea of what you think.
2: Well, I think that where I am maybe mildly, cautiously helpful. <laughs> that could be very conflicted, mm-hmm. yeah. um, I think I mentioned <clears> at <throat> the talk, at least we've gotten through one election with the carbon pricing framework. Um, which any as any climate policy, the longer that it is in place, the more likely it is to entrench. Mm-hmm. I think, um, as you mentioned, and I, um, Catherine Abro mentioned, um, at the talk um, was that the pan-Canadian framework is much more than just climate pricing. Mm. Um, In particular, um, sort of the supports for decarbonizing the transport sector are probably what I'm excited about. Um, The other thing that I think and I mentioned that at the talk too, but um, I'm much more interested in how Canada might start to encourage um, decarbonization of the transport sector in particular, and particular encourage um, electrical vehicle yeah. uptake. Mm-hmm. Um, partially because any any climate policy, what you want to do is build a coalition of support, um, without having massive um, initial sort of costs to an incumbent industry, which is not um, compensated in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think um, looking at the ways in which we can create policies that get utilities on board, for example, um, sort of encouraging towards decarbonization is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Pan-Canadian Framework does have um, expectations and targets for, Um, zero EVs um, and zero emission vehicles Um, and part of those are usually a combination of incentives for you know you can get a rebate if you um purchase um at point of sale um there the government can invest in charging stations uh, and helping utilities to create that kind of infrastructure um it can also do things with the tax system in terms of reducing um in norway for example they um Incentivized EV uptake by changing um, the basically changing the tax system for what you, the kinds of tax that you would have to uh, when you purchased, um, but also um, reduce the rate that you would pay. Um, I think even on some of the tolls, um, I'd have to look this up actually. So, this is one of those things where, but. There, it, there are there are things that you can do to the tax system that will encourage and incentivize public uptake. Um, there's other things that you can do in terms of normalizing um, it as well. Um, I think it, there's become definitely well, definitely in Norway where it has uh, I think thirty percent. Of vehicles on the road or electric vehicles, nice. um, which has a sort of normalized. There's a cultural change of sort of. It's almost like a um, uh, what's the word? A luxury good. Okay. Right. So you're so it's something it's considered you're considered to be keeping up with the Joneses if yeah. you are purchasing an electric vehicle. So that's that's one option. For public transit, I think the thing that um, needs to happen particularly in Ontario is the kind of regional planning which has had such trouble in the province because of the tension between municipal and provincial governance of transit and because I think who the population that really needs to get on board with public transit is the suburban um, Mm -hmm. areas which are underserved by transit and overserved by cars mm-hmm. yeah. um, and so part of um, some of the work that I've seen um, by uh, Gabe Edelman at Monk um, but also um, he's written a great piece on uber um, for example, can you create transit systems where uber might connect? connect So you have, you see this in the States in some places where you might have ride sharing to a, you'd have infrastructure at the um, transit level. So for example, at a subway stop or um, that is facilitating pickup from Lyft or Uber. So you basically are creating a flow where different, rural or urban, suburban communities can connect in to the public transit mm-hmm. system. And I think there needs to be a lot more sort of creative thinking around how you might use a gig economy um, right. to kind of achieve some of those to things in addition or, or, to right. large public infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the problem with public transit is that it's very politically... Um, tricky in terms of the shiny new projects, the subways, the yeah. massive cross rails, those are the kinds of ones that politicians were, I, I mean, I used to live in Vancouver and the joke was that we, instead of getting a sort of functional <laughs> SkyTrain system, we got one that went in a loop because yeah. it went through different politicians' backyards, uh-huh. right? So the, the, in terms of getting support for any big capital infrastructure is quite difficult.
1: Um, the next question I have is actually kind of a two-pronged question Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of your research also surrounds like the comparative and cross-regulation policy um, between provinces Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm interested to hear um, your take on how you know now the minority government we're moving forward now um, but we have some provinces that are very resistant to um, a lot of the policies proposed by the federal government um, very much on different pages about the move forward Mm -hmm. in relation to climate change. And I'm curious um, to hear what you just say in relation to how we can mobilize these provinces that seem to be on very different pages um, onto this conversation, Mm -hmm. um, given the structure of the politics in our country. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, um, sorry, it's kind of a long question. Um, I'm also curious to hear your opinion um, just about how climate politics has become such a divisive issue. Um, like we said, you know, there's people that are going to deny it, and there's people that are go- are going to be averse to change. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I think, just increasingly become either you're for it or you're not, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, well, but the end, like the facts are there, the science is there. Um, so I'm curious to hear um, your thoughts on both the province side and the polarization in general.
2: Okay. I think, um, you know, what this election illustrates is an ongoing and, you know, deep problem in Canada about where how our natural resource endowments are distributed. Um, and so the fact that Alberta and Saskatchewan, and to some extent BC, um, because of their... Um, dependence or growing investment in LNG and fracking and natural gas production um, are all have they have just the effects on their economy is going to be quite different and so I think although it's interesting you know Jason it's very it's not clear what Jason Kenney is going to do with regard to climate I mean the um emitting the current policy that they've introduced um, is actually, um, has elements of it which are very similar to the federal backstop. Um, that hasn't got a lot of play, um, you know, in terms, he's kept relatively quiet about that, but it's actually not that different than the existing policy. Um, I, and I, I don't know what, I mean, it looks like the Ford can government is just going to continue to sit on climate. I mean, it's obviously um, dismantled m- much of the existing former um, climate policy um, with regards to cap and trade and the feed-in tariffs. The feed-in tariffs had already um, been dismantled by the um, Liberal government, but they did rescind a bunch of contracts. And um, However, I think, um, again, in Ontario, it's going to depend on the degree of mobilization, I think, that happens on the ground in support of climate and then also what happens with the court case um, at the Supreme Court level. Um, so that, you know, I'm quite reluctant to... Predict what you know. What's going to happen? It's. I think we're at a very interesting time. We're at a particularly unpredictable mm-hmm. time. Um, I think we're not going to see the kind of leadership that we did see from Ontario um, under the Liberal government. Um, I think, with regards to how climate politics has become polarized, um, it's so. There are two factors with that. One is that the focus on carbon pricing um makes the debates particularly and katherine harrison at ubc has done a lot of work on this um but it makes it quite easy to attack um the 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 attack from both sides so on one level you can you can get people gaining a political gain by attacking it because it's a tax and no one has ever been elected very rarely (laughs) supporting a tax increase on the other hand it's it's can be attacked um from the left because it has a disproportionate effect on on people so then what governments have to become is very adept at um Signaling to the public that there are benefits, and so you know, arguably, the federal government has done that fairly well in terms of providing dividends. You know, they are providing Mm -hmm, checks, but they're not sending checks to people's houses. So that might have been even more visible in terms of individual benefits. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think it's important to note. So, so that's one thing is that is that the focus on carbon pricing is. Carbon pricing is susceptible to these kinds of polarization, even though carbon pricing itself is was a conservative idea. I mean, it's mobile; it's harnessing the markets, right, in support of change. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think it's also important to note that there, especially in the U.S., there has been a concentrated effort by oil and gas industry um, to to fight. Movement on climate, and that that has happened particularly around framing um, discussions of the certainty or uncertainty of climate science, um, and that that has intensified. Now, despite the fact that we're seeing that kind of polarization, there are places where you don't see it. So, for example, um, I think people m- mentioned a bunch of time, uh, in the eastern provinces you don't see this kind of polarization around climate policy. Um, in Nova Scotia there's been a cross-party support for um, wind and uh, p- uh, and different sort of climate initiatives. In, in Quebec you see across the board uh, inter-party coalition and support so it's possible but it requires politicians to not take the easy get Mm -hmm. it requires people to say okay i'm i'm going to deliberately because this is in the interests of uh, of our global survival um i'm not going to try to create this as a wedge issue and unfortunately um in canada it seems to be emerging as a suburban urban um sort of rural urban Wedge issue, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind
2: of want. I, I kind of want to ask
0: this one. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, cool.
1: This is an interesting question. Okay, so given that this is a global climate crisis, mm-hmm. like this is not just the Canadian context. However, it has been incredibly interesting to hear from your perspective, um, Canada's place and Canada's, mm-hmm. you know, move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like a just like on a global scale. So. Mm-hmm. Um, for one of our classes, we we take international law, mm-hmm. uh, international public law to be spe- mm-hmm. m- more specific. And we recently looked at international public law and the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's often criticized international law, international institutions in general, for their um, ability to enact tangible change at the, lo- the lower level as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious, do you think, like, criminalizing... Uh, you know, um, acts against the environment is something that could be considered as something that can be done through international organizations at a higher level, mm-hmm. um, rather than just declarations of you know this is what you should do, mm-hmm. but if you don't, then we can't do anything, kind of thing. You know. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm just curious. It's it's kind of a an out there kind of question, yeah. but I just
2: thought I would ask. I think um, it's. So part of the challenge of climate um, and um, Matthew Hoffman and Stephen Bernstein, who are the co-directors of the governance lab, have just recently published on this. Um, but part of the challenge of climate action has been the notion that we're dealing with a tragedy of the commons in terms of, you know, we need that, that classic um, environmental pro- problem of we need coordinated Um, collective action, and yet the individual incentives are always to defect, right? Um, But the problem, and so what that has generally tended to say is because it's a global problem, we need global action. And for a long time, that was true. That was the main push, was that we would get multilateral negotiations. We would work through the UN. This would create a sort of international framework by which action could happen, And that stalled out for about 20 to 30 years. Mm. Um, We had some movement with Paris, but part of the reason why Paris was successful, the Paris Agreement was successful, was because it downloaded responsibility for how those targets would be met through domestic politics. And so I tend to be less of... um, although I appreciate the desire to say this is criminal, the problem is always enforcement. Who's yeah. who's going to be the enforcer on that? And you did have some sort of soft power enforcement with under Obama with the U.S., but you don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so what I tend to agree with is um, Hoffman and Bernstein's approach, which is to say um, it is much better to think of our problem as a problem of carbon lock-in so and carbon lock-in is the idea that we live in a fractal system so just when you think of a fractal like a snowflake um multiple different um interlocking um pieces um at sort of both the individual municipal regional global scale but that keep us locked into um, producing carbon and but what you want is interventions at a bunch of different levels and a bunch of different scales which can both can sort of mobilize that interlocked fractal system into a pathway towards decarbonization. And so it, it's sort of almost if you could think of it as a um, you know a so, so sort of slow contagion spread that could well that could very pick quickly speed up and entrench. Um, But I think that sort of ground-up approach of multiple interventions at multiple different levels, you are probably more likely to get where you want to go. So maybe that means a small community criminalizes, um, you know, harms against the environment. Maybe. I mean, maybe if it's a small country that could, that had that sort of, we don't tend to have that positive uh, positive rights mm-hmm. framework, um, which makes it much more difficult, I think, yeah. in, in uh, you know, the Canadian context. Um, but I don't think it, it's an interesting concept. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> I thought I ask you.
0: All right. Uh, last question. Um, are you pessimistic or optimistic about the future?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I have a three year old, so I have to be optimistic because yeah. alternatively, that's pretty, pretty dark. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, um, I do think seriously about whether or not I'm going to live on a coast, um, which is also supremely um, scary. Uh, I think what is I'm very cautiously optimistic about is just the strength of the youth movement. Um, in particular, the Sunrise Movement and, and um, you know, obviously the climate strikes. Um, but I, I think, because I think that... Um it's very hard for people to change in their lifetimes, but it's very mm-hmm. easy for generational shifts to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. If the youth focus out, um, big things can happen. I mean, we'll see what happens in the UK. There's a huge discussion. You, Climate is incredibly salient in the UK election to the degree that it hasn't been in a very long time. And even when you look at the conservative platforms in the UK, they're still talking in a lot of places about their climate plans they're not completely anti-climate so that's going to be a really inter- interesting election to watch from a comparative perspective to see where the conversation about climate is happening
1: mm-hmm.
2: so, absolutely yeah
1: well it's all from us today thank you so much for you. taking the time out of your schedule to meet with us thank you we really really appreciate joy. it it's been incredibly interesting and has contributed greatly to our, mm-hmm. our climate series so yeah. thank you heather thank, thank you, you
0: Heather.